0: 47-carat necklace, who would wear that? You'll be surprised. How would you like to go scuba diving without getting wet? Good lord, it's the Great Gatsby. Find out what the best-rated islands to live on are, and if you don't like islands, would you learn how to live 30,000 feet above sea level? And we're not talking about living on Mount Everest. And speaking of home, there's a new trend luring kids to want to stay home often. Did you know you can find France and Italy? That and a lot more on Affairs of Affluence episode number one for Wednesday, May 15th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, HelpMeMoveOn.com. There's a new real estate agent matching making service and is called HelpMeMoveOn.com. It will help you with your move by helping you find the right real estate agent to represent you in the sale or purchase of your home anywhere in the U.S. and even in most countries. Hello and welcome to Affairs of Affluence. I'm your host, Carlos Cruz, and we are here to connect you with the finer things in life. This show focuses on the new era of luxury for the sophisticated affluent connoisseur. We'll talk about the world's premium and luxury products and upscale providers of top luxury services, including the California and global real estate market. Have you seen the movie based on the 1925 novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald called The Great Gatsby? If you have, you have probably saw the jewelry pieces used to describe that era. If you were fascinated or fell in love with some of the pieces, you can now add them to your collection of jewelry. You may not know this, but much of the inspiration for the film's stunning designs came straight from the Tiffany archives. Tiffany now has a Jazz Age glamour masterpiece inspired by the spirit of the Roaring Twenties you can find a Zigfield pearl tassel necklace evoking the cool elegance of the Roaring Twenties. This 33-inch long necklace is in sterling silver with freshwater cultured pearls. The pearls range in 2.5 to 9.5 millimeter in size. They have a beautiful yellow diamond daisy brooch with its diamonds set in platinum. Its yellow diamonds are a total weight of 0.19 carats with 5.78 carats of white diamonds surrounding it. If you really want to be the center of attention, there's a Savoy headpiece as well. It features a detachable brooch with freshwater culture pearls and a total carat weight of 25 carats. These masterpieces show nothing less of a sleek sophistication in fashion and jewelry. Aston Martin confirms that the Invest Industrial partnership previously announced in December 2012 has been completed. The deal brings £150 million pounds of investment in the form of a capital increase. The investment underpins a significant new product development program of more than half a, mil, half a billion pounds over the next five years. With the support of major shareholders, the investment DAR, Adim Investment, and now Invest Industrial, Aston Martin is well positioned to realize its ambitious growth strategy. Details of this first year's quarter results will be announced to bondholders late in May. Aston Martin production will remain at the luxury British Marquis Global Headquarters at the Gaydon at Warwickshire, a purpose-built facility where a skilled workforce assembles the current range of sports cars. According to Alison Cavator of HorteLiving.com. the St. Laurent Rodeo Drive store is currently undergoing renovations. But fear not. They have opened up a temporary location at 468 North Rodeo Drive and is currently open to the public until they are finished renovating the main location at 326 North Rodeo Drive. If you've been looking for that secluded dream island home, the editors at Islands.com have ranked the top 20 islands to live on. The rankings include Hawaii, St. Croix, the Grand Caymans, several South Pacific Islands, and Tahiti. The top five islands include Indonesia coming in at number five, where 10 years ago, a plot of land that cost $30,000 was, would now fetch millions goes to show you real estate is always more than likely able to provide you with a great return on investment the number four island to live on saigro in the philippines round out number three is votan honduras which is largely undeveloped this location has a handful of weekly direct flights to five u.s cities number two is the bahamas If you happen to have $85 million to spare, you can always purchase the Exumas estate in the Bahamas. Just 30 minutes from Nassau, it's move-in ready with living quarters for 22 in the main house and guest cottages. As an added bonus, you get a Cessna 208 float plane. And the number one island to live on is, before I share that with you, I'll give you 5 seconds to take a guess. If you guessed the island of Sardinia, you are so way off. The big island, Hawaii, has been rated as the number one island to live on. And if you're looking for that beachfront property, there's an 11,300 square foot estate on 25 acres along the island's northern tip, boasting six bedrooms, three fireplaces, and a 2,000 bottle wine cellar. You'll have a good reason to celebrate sunrises and sunsets. Current listing price is just a little over $13 million. If you thought flying in luxury meant being in first class, then you need to see Boeing business jets. Boeing has taken several of its commercial models and reinvented them to the private market. If you put a high premium on mobility, style, comfort, then you may want to check them out. You can live on land, on the road, on the sea, and now you can more than likely live above the highest peaks. I believe Boeing business jets will make you reconsider private airline luxury. You'll never look at first class the same again. Did you know you can now go scuba diving without getting wet? That's right, I'm sure Schlemmer is now selling a remote-operated submarine that sends live video to your iPad from 100 feet underwater. The sub is tethered to its receiver on deck with a 100-foot video cable. Communicating with the receiver using Wi-Fi, an app installed on your iPad or laptop remotely controls the sub's electronic thrust and propellers for full control motion. The sub can travel around five knots forward and one knot in reverse. You can also use the iPad built-in motion sensors to steer the sub. The sub also includes an HD video camera which captures 1280 by 720 resolution video. Eric Schmidt, the owner of a 255 foot Expedition super yacht, was sold in April to the Antibes Yacht Show. The vessel, registered as the Long Ranger, can easily circumnavigate the globe with its 31,000 mile range on a single tank. The sale price is currently not made public, but there is speculation that it may have gone anywhere from 10 to 15 million. Bentley has launched a new luxury sedan, the Flying Spur. With a 6-liter W12 engine, the Flying Spur can propel from 0 to 60 miles per hour in 4.3 seconds and on a top speed of 200 miles per hour. This seems to be a massive luxury vehicle with sharp new designs and more modern electronics. The Flying Spur is expected to be released in the summer of 2013. The Savigny Luxury Index lost 1.5% in April, underperforming the MSCI World Index by almost 2 percentage points. The luxury spending in Europe has been hit by a drop in tourist demand as well as a price increase by brands seeking wider margins. The unusually cold weather, particularly in March, also contributed to a weak demand for spring-summer ready-to-wear collections. There seems to be a new trend where luxury home builders are starting to cater the much younger affluent crowd. According to Candace Jackson, a journalist for Wall Street Journal, she discovered that 10-17 to 17 year olds are becoming newer demographics for luxury builders. Parents are turning to architects and designers to find ways to lure their children to want to start hanging out at home. The next time you view an open house, start looking for a new set of spaces. This can range from teen lounges, hangout areas, sleepover spaces, and the new style of office for doing work. There was even one home which was redesigned with secret passageways, just like in the Harry Potter movie. One very good point which was brought up is to remember to design your spaces in a way which will make it easy to convert back when you're ready to move. As a real estate agent myself, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I recommend you read this article by Candace Jackson of the Wall Street Journal. It is very insightful, and if you have any questions about modifying your home, feel free to contact us at affairs at luxuryconnoisseur.com, and we can put you in touch with the right professional. We have a large list of professionals to assist you with all your needs. For more information on these topics, visit our show notes on affairsofaffluence.com. Don't forget to let them know you heard about them on the Affairs of Affluence show. Affairs of Affluence is fortunate to have an amazing audience. We want to make sure you have the opportunity to connect with us online and join our conversations. By subscribing to our videos on YouTube, becoming part of our inner circle, on Google+, following our tweets on Twitter, or subscribing to our newsletter, you can make sure that you hear the latest things first. You can visit us at affairsofaffluence.com and click on the Find Us online link at the top of the Luxury Connoisseur website. We want to make sure you have the opportunity to connect with us on Affairs of Affluence and most importantly, with each other. Don't be left out in the dark. Sign up to follow us on our Twitter and our newsletters today. Let's go ahead and talk about real estate. It doesn't matter if you gained your wealth by being either a stock market investor or you're a high salary executive or even a private business owner. One way or the other, for the most part, each one of these wealth types have some sort of connection to real estate. The other type of wealth creator is the real estate investor. A friend over at Cold War Banker or Previews International recently released their 2013 luxury real estate report. I thought I'd share some of the highlights with you. Once a home is in excess of $5 million, it becomes more of an art form to figure out what the price is going to be. The reason for this is because you may find it challenging of the scarcity of homes in the same range. There are only so many $100 million homes which can be compared to each other. You can go to Hillsborough, Beverly Hills, or New York City, you'll see the differences. And for those of you who are new to the wealth scene, I highly recommend you keep these in mind. There are basically seven factors that will affect the price of your luxury home. The first factor would be the one you always hear about, location, location, location. And this is the most significant factor in a luxury home do you have grand views or are you looking at the back of someone else's building A majority of your price guesstimation will be due to location there is a thing called irreplaceability and this has to deal with construction restrictions if you're looking to buy an older home thinking you'll be able to build a larger home you better check with the local county and city building restrictions there is a possibility the current structure could not be built under today's restrictions guidelines this gives a property a -a one-of-a-kind status which in turn increases its value. The rarity of its location is another driving force behind luxury home prices. Aside from its location, its architectural significance is a major factor as well. Not only how it looks to you, what style it is, but who built it. That alone may completely throw off pricing because what someone is willing to pay, just because it was built by a Frank Gehry, a Lo Ming Pai, a Frank Lloyd White, Oscar Niemeyer, or Ray Cape, each luxury home will have its own life. In essence, its own soul because of who built it. This is similar to the celebrity ownership factor. While most homes haven't had any celebrities live in it, the ones that do will fetch a higher than average price. Whether it's a sports figure, famous politician, or actor, these are driving factors, which will add a bit more interest and price in that home. The last two factors related are the quality of finishes and its premium amenities. Does the property have any over the top amenities or does it have very opulent finishes? Does it have gold and other expensive metals? High quality marble? Does it have a massive playground or a grand ballroom? When you're looking for high-end luxury homes, a majority of it relates to how it matches your personality. The home has to feel right to you. So no matter how much money you have or how much you're ready to and willing to spend, don't buy a home unless when you walk through that door, it feels like home. We'd like to thank our sponsor, HelpMeMoveOn.com. There's a new real estate agent matchmaking service, and it's called HelpMeMoveOn.com. They will help you with your move by helping you find the right real estate agent to represent you in the sale or purchase of your home, and if necessary, assist you with your relocation. Moving is a highly stressful time for everybody involved, and making sure you have a smooth transition from one location to another is what HelpMeMoveOn.com does best. That usually starts by finding the right real estate agent. Why sell or buy yourself when you don't have to? Whether you're moving across the street, across town, to a completely different state or country, HelpMeMoveOn.com can help you with your real estate needs. HelpMeMoveOn.com is proud to be associated with the Global Relocation Network. This network is comprised of nearly 700 independent residential real estate firms in excess of 145,000 sales associates in 35 countries. This allows HelpMeMoveOn.com to offer you relocation services both nationally and internationally and is the most effective way to ensure you receive superior customer service. We have the ability to support a client's real estate needs anywhere in the world. We'll have global reach with high quality professional resources. HelpMeMoveOn.com makes home buying less stressful and selling your home is now easier by going to HelpMeMoveOn.com and filling out the form. You'll receive a call from a live person, not a recording or just an email stating we received your email Someone will call you to evaluate what your needs are. Do you have children with special needs? Are you moving to a super remote location? Do you have very expensive items that have to be handled with care? Or maybe you have parents or grandparents moving with you and they do not speak English very well and require an agent that speaks your native language. It doesn't matter if you're looking to buy or sell a home that is $80,000 or $5 million. Helpmemoveon.com can make sure your agent matches your needs and requirements. HelpMeMoveOn.com will stay with you from beginning to end and even follow up with you after your relocation is completed. HelpMeMoveOn.com is all about ensuring you have a pleasant moving experience. There is no reason for you to deal with all the headaches and hassles of a move. Visit HelpMeMoveOn.com and fill out the form. There's no cost, no obligation to help you find an agent. Let them know you heard us on Affairs of Affluence. Go now to HelpMeMoveOn.com. Our next guest is the founder of JF Diamonds. John France is an English-born entrepreneur with a long-held passion for Italian design and artisanship. Following an Oxford University degree in Italian literature, John departed his native England for Milan in 1999 to pursue his true calling. His work as a consultant and lawyer to well-known Italian luxury brands led to a special specialization and flair for fine diamonds culminating in the creation of J.F. Diamonds, a truly unique and bespoke Italian fine diamond jeweler and loose diamond dealer. John, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. How are things going in Italy? Um,
1: I would say on the whole, um, certainly in the, the the sectors you just mentioned, the luxury sectors, um, fashion, jewelry, that sort of thing, I would say in Italy they are not going well at all. Italy's been struck very hard by the... Um, by the recession, so a lot of the, you know, the very big names within the Italian fashion world, including um, within the jewelry world, are suffering heavily. Their home markets, I would say, have almost vanished. And what you're seeing is an increasing trend to, for Italian, um, these Italian brands to look abroad to the places which uh, well, which are no surprise, you know, to look to Asia, India, China basically what you're seeing is a trend to, 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 to look, to expand into these markets, um, in an attempt to, you know, boost sales and so on. Um, because the the home markets are no longer reliable as a source of, as a source of revenue and, um, and who knows how long that's going to last. So what we're seeing is is a a big trend and this is something I still do from the, the, the business side of, um, of my setup, and we'll come to that later. Exactly how we've we've organised ourselves is that we um, assist people as well as doing business on our own account in in, in terms of the di- uh, the diamond business in seeking out and making contact with uh, with the relevant people in the jurisdictions that I just mentioned: Asia, China, India, Russia, to some extent, in attempt to to broaden out and globalise some of these brands, which traditionally for years have been family owned. Kind of relied upon a, a, a what up to a few years ago was a very wealthy northern Italy client base uh, which is more or less I wouldn't say totally vanished but being severely dis, uh, diminished the The trend is very much globalization in search of new markets and um, to be honest new 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 funding new backers so
0: are you finding it easier? Uh, to find clients outside of the European Union? I would say there are two enclaves in Europe which I would hardly say
1: are not representative of Europe as a whole, where we we still have clients and those would be Monte Carlo, uh, and of course Monaco is is effectively a country. It's I think it's a principality. I think it's a correct word, but effectively in layman's terms, it's a country of its own because of its tax benefits you have uh, it's it's population of would tend to be ultra high net worth individuals from from around the globe who um you know will spend a certain amount of time in Monte Carlo as I, as I said for tax reasons so that has always been um i would say fertile hunting ground for us and we have many clients who are based in Monte Carlo and the other the other country um i would say is switzerland um and there were two elements there. There is the, similar to Monte Carlo, Gestat is um, a place where many high net worth individuals, and here I'm talking about the retail end of our business. You know, these, these are people who would buy our jewelry as opposed to, let's say, the, the diamond dealing business or the financial aspects of the business that we offer, which we can talk about later. The sort of similar type of people you find who, who now live in Monte Carlo, is, has, um as a canton, has come up with um, a set of regulations meaning that it, it's attractive to to the high net worth individual to become tax resident in in Gestadt so that is certainly um, a point in Europe that, that that we that we would concentrate on but I would say for Europe that is more or less it that that we've taken a strategic decision that those are the only two places that it's worth us marketing to and 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 paying attention to um i would say italy you know spain france the uk the uk is slightly different because the uk is something of a a fashion hub we're we're still not quite sure what what approach to take to the uk because a lot of a lot of people still like just just as a matter of pleasure to um you know get on their planes go to london and go on a shopping spree that's something that that's a phenomenon that's been around for a long time and it is still there to some extent, but it's quite tricky to get a handle on how many people are doing that and and how much they're spending, which is of course crucial when formulating, if you like, a marketing campaign and working out how much you know how much money is worth spending marketing to that that sort of place. So we have mixed views on that. That is how I would sum up Europe at this particular point in time in the in the luxury sector that we're talking about obviously when if you move into real estate london is a different kettle of fish i would say is booming at the moment at, at certain levels and that of course brings along the, the 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 same sort of people that would you know we would we would want to attract as clientele for our goods so the two the two feed off each other so in london we're, we what we've been doing is generally keeping keeping tabs and hooking up with the real estate people to find out who, who exactly are, you know, basing themselves at least for some some of the time in in, in the UK and what, you know, what, what they're spending and what they're spending on.
0: Well, I have to commend you because you actually sound like someone who not only just uh, owns and runs a business, but you're completely aware of your marketplace on a global scale. And that's really not easy to do. I deal with a lot of uh, business owners uh, locally here in California, as well as uh, globally. And They may be smart in the industry and their field, but when it comes down to marketing and knowing exactly who their clientele is, they basically have somebody else that is a specialist in that for their business. And you, you seem to know exactly where your clientele are, who they are, and what they're doing. So I wish to commend you on that one. Uh, you're you're located in Milan, which of course is a beautiful area. What area of Milan do you live
1: in? Um, we live in. We're based in the what they call the the the, the quadrilaterale, which is the um, it's a they're basically four Street via Monte Napoleone, we're in via della Spiga, which is parallel, and there's some streets via Sant'Andrea, via San San Gesù, which is the the fashion hub of Milan. So we're right in. You know, we have we're next door to Roberto Cavalli's flagship store. Prada next door, that's the kind of place you want to be if you know if that's your market. So we placed ourselves there. On the administrative side, because we also you know we have a uh, if you like a more financial offering which is related to the diamond dealing, and there we have offices in the in the city in London in Chancery Lane and that we use the name of the the holding company which is called JP France limited to deal with that and JP France limited owns the brand JF Diamonds and all the related um, you know ip rights owns the diamonds and so on so the, the the JF brands, the home is in Milan in the middle of the fa- in the middle of the fashion district via monte napoleone etc the um, financial offering, and there our clients have funds and so on. And we can come on to that, the why diamonds are, uh, have become a sort of topical issue at the moment as people, investors, seek new asset classes in which to invest their money, given the, the sort of current um, lack of certainty around the more traditional asset classes of you know, stocks and shares and so on real estate to a lesser extent so that's the way we've set up we put the financial end in the middle of london's financial district london still being you know i suppose with new york and to some extent singapore the the main financial hubs in the world and i think where you need to be i think the jf brands which is owned by jp france limited is obviously very much a high-end luxury fashion brand well fashion is the wrong word i mean it's a high-end jewelry brand is in the middle of the financial the, the, the fashion area in Milan, which I still think is one of the the, the the important fashion areas in the world I think just maybe just maybe in the past few years because of the the recession that Italy suffered that, that i didn't know that it would probably be more for you to tell me whether. I don't know whether as 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 an American you still see Milan as a, a major force in fashion or whether you think it's 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 maybe lost some of that sheen over the past few years and been overtaken by Paris London I'm not sure but I I would still say it's quite a force to be reckoned with
0: I do agree with you I do believe that Milan New York Paris are there those are still the major areas I think now we have we're seeing more maybe a uh, well, Shanghai, Hong Kong, yes, entering the yeah. scene. You
1: hit the nail on the head. Uh, the, you know, the Asians are really, you know, are, you know, they've worked hard at that. You know, Dubai, of course, is you have all the luxury that you, you could possibly want out there. Singapore. Um, I'd say Europe is facing some challenges from, from Asia, quite considerable challenges, both on both the sort of luxury and real estate and as financial hubs. financial hubs maybe a lesser i think new york and london for the moment are relatively safe in their positions as the the sort of world leaders or you know as, as financial centers but you're right there's, there's big competition coming out of china and asia and so on. And I think you know, rather, it's wrong to see it really as competition. It's a case of embracing it and working out the correct strategy to make sure that one's own brand can take advantage of that. Because obviously, you know, the, the 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 sort of European edge or the the US edge can can appeal to 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 the Asian Chinese client base for all sorts of reasons. So that we we still have things to offer them that they 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 cannot. Um, produce at home, if you like. But I think that's a very good point you make. There's definitely competition, and it's increasing every day from that from that part of the globe.
0: So you live in uh, Milan. Uh, you probably have quick access to many other areas. Uh, what would you say are your favorite destinations, just off the top of your head, uh, when you're not working?
1: I would say, um, well, I love the Italian Riviera. Um, I'm going there later down today, Portofino. Santa Margherita, which is, it's the, it's the sort of Italian equivalent of the French Riviera, you know, Saint-Tropez and Cannes, Nice, which I also love. Those So around Europe, I like that, and, and Sardinia. Um, I would say in Europe, those are my favorite places for skiing, Samaritz, and so on. For Sun, um, I like, in the Caribbean, I love St. Barthes. We go there quite a lot. Um, um, and the Seychelles. These are the sort of places, um, the sort of places I like to go.
0: You also used to live in England, and you also went to Oxford University to study Italian literature. Uh, so you was exposed to some of the great literary minds in the Renaissance period. Uh, John, other than being seduced by these Italian writers and artists, what was it about Italy that drew you to her? I
1: think the, the, I think the aesthetics of the place. I think one thing, Italy still managed, not despite despite, you know, all the difficulties it's going through now, I think it's still considered a major force in, you know, design, aesthetics, values of artisanship, quality of workmanship. I think these are things the Italians are very keen to hold on to and be, be known for. And it's something I admire and obviously sort of dovetails very well into what I do. So, so that interests me a great deal. The other, the other thing is under the umbrella of my holding company, JP France Limited. We also have a, um, a fine art dealership, which is something else which interests me a great deal, and we 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 deal with a lot of Italian artists and so on. So that is something where, if you like, you know, my studies from years back, I've managed to you know, to 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 carry across into into um, you know my business activities, and I find that tremendously you know satisfying when you can mix your sort of personal tastes and um, likes into and and turn it i wouldn't say turn it into a business but use those things to improve um and be more knowledgeable about one's own business so some people might say "Mm, studying literature well that's not such a great start to um to a business career you know why aren't you out doing an mba or whatever but actually i would. In, in my own particular business, I would say no, that's totally untrue. Um, you know, the business side I learned just by being a, a business lawyer. But you, if a lot of business lawyers couldn't do what I do because they don't have the knowledge of, um, you know, if you like the aesthetic and cultural uh, drivers behind the business and what you know what what pushes people to whether it's art, jewellery etc what pushes people to buy these things why they you know why they like these things so I think the the mix Um, of I think the mix of my sort of undergraduate education at at Oxford which is very much artistic and then combine that with a business education becoming a you know a a financial lawyer I think makes quite a, a useful a useful mix for what I'm doing.
0: You also consulted to various luxury brands before starting JF Diamonds uh, can you share some of your learning experience as a consultant, and if you can, uh, share some of the brands you worked with?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and this is something I still do for for various reasons. One, as we mentioned, you know, you you mentioned that uh, having a sort of global, keeping one's global knowledge as to what's going on around the globe is is extremely important. And this is where my work is. I'm Consultancy, well, actually, consultancy is still, is probably the right word. I, I have a, um, a law firm as well, and I carry on a, a legal practice, but I would say it's more, as you said, as you use the word consultancy, that is more the role. And what we what we do, as I, as I said, a lot of the um, European and, and Italian brands are suffering at the moment, and they need to um, uh, improve their balance sheets, globalize move into other markets and where i come in on that is using contacts i've built up over the years in asia india in particular where i have very strong relationships with the tata group uh with the state bank of india with reliance with the ambani brothers who i don't know who are like both of them are in the top 20 in the four list companies such as that various russian oligarchs on on the russian side links in china and so what quite a lot of the work i do is I, I will have brands come along and say, you know, we need to, we need to, we should be in these markets. They they have um, increasing economic power. Most importantly, they have a middle class. Most of these countries have always had very rich people with their private jets. You just fly around the, uh, fly around the globe and go shopping. What what? Why a lot of um, fashion brands have been really hit is, is because it's the if you like the mid level your your middle-class clientele who can have a certain amount to spend, a lot of that in Europe has dropped off. But what you're finding is in in India and Asia is the opposite movement, where they've got a growing middle class with an increasing amount of economic power, but who don't, they're not, they can't just hop in their private jet and fly to Paris or Milan or London or wherever or New York to go and do their shopping, but they would like to see these brands on their doorstep so that they can walk into, you know, their high fashion show their high jewelry show uh, store or, or whatever, and buy these goods. And this has been the the, I would certainly say that, you know, the Italian brands, they're aware of this. The question is, how do we, how do we tap into that and the answer is you need a partner you need a very trustworthy partner you need someone to explain to you because the the cultural differences between you know asia india china russia and and italy in particular because it is in no the one differences let's say between italy and london and new york which are very cosmopolitan and have been used to you know the cultural mix for for very many many years I'd say one thing that's lacking in Italy is they don't really have that. The Italians have a very specific style of doing business. It can be something that's difficult to, you know, for, let's say, investors from India, China, Asia to to, to come to Giltsworth. And this is where I step in, where I, you know, may get a call from the CEO of, you wanted some names, we're working with Cavalli a great deal at the moment, Roberto Cavalli uh versace that's on the clothing side we work with bucellati i guess you know he's, he's always number one or two jeweler in the world in terms of quality of goods he provides all the silverware to the white house for example which not many people know they they what a lot of my job will be although it it comes to me as a law firm it's really more as you say a a consultant. I will speak to them. They will say, you know, we we. They basically say, you know, we're we're running out of money. We need to think of some ideas. How do we, how do we put this brand into India or whatever? So then I speak with my Indian counterparts. We we usually via the State Bank of India, which is which is akin to working with the government more or less, and they will identify people like Reliance, the, the Ambani brothers, or the Future Group, just to name a couple of of huge Indian or Tata. You know, huge Indian companies with huge cash piles who are very keen. You know, it's obviously an, an advantageous for, the, for them at the moment as well at the moment because they see, you know, rich pickings to be had in Europe and their incentives provided by their own home governments to, to, to going out into Europe, buying these brands and bringing them back into India. So what I would do is in effect act as an intermediary, but also as, if you like a cultural bridge to introduce some of these. I would say they are iconic. I would say Versace is an iconic brand. Roberto Cavalli is an an iconic brand. Um, And there are a whole host of them. I would say take any um, Italian fashion brand at the moment, apart from what I call the three untouchables, who are Armani, Prada, and Dolce & Gabbana, who really know how to look after themselves. All of the others are open to discussions about how to tap into more lucrative markets. So a lot of my job will be to, if you like, bridge the gap between those companies and their suitors, if you like, from India, Asia, China or whatever. And inform each other of what they can expect. What what you find is a lot of a lot of the Italian fashion brands are still very much family owned, very close knit, very protective of themselves. And they can find the way actually almost most other cultures find business quite alien to them. And quite a lot of my job is 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 when there's there's a meeting of minds, and you we say, well, you know, Cavalli might work well with this particular partner. This this is a clean partner because quite a few Italian brands have run into trouble trying to find partners in these places by themselves, and there've been one or two scandals of companies unwittingly getting mixed up with the wrong partner and finding themselves in trouble with money laundering issues and things like that. That's something you've got to be incredibly on top of and make sure you're putting these people together with reputable partners and so the the job is twofold is one is is making sure that keeping the dialogue going and making sure that each side understands that the reaction they're getting from say the, the Indians understand that the, the reaction they're getting from the Italians, what that means. And likewise, the Italians may, you know, an initial meeting may be held with some Indian investors and then there's silence for a while. The, the, the natural, in Italy, the natural um, conclusions that Italians often jump to when they come to silence is that means there's no interest and we have to explain to them, no, 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 that's just not the case at all. These people are busy there talking, working it out, crunching the figures and so on. So quite a lot of the job is to keep, you know, to keep the sides informed, keep them happy, make sure the relationship is good, make sure each side understands what's, what's going on, that no one's wasting each other's time. I spend a lot of time doing that at the, at the moment. And, you know, trying to put, you know, if one of these companies says, I want to be in India, we say, right, well, you know, this is this is the type of partner, who, you know, this... We find we find one partner who let's say is incredibly successful at what I would call premium goods, which is one level below let's say luxury. They're slightly nervous about luxury the on the Indian side because they don't really understand it, so that doesn't work. So we say, Well let's let's try someone like the Reliance who who are all over luxury. There's a better partner for you, they've got a very they very clean track record, they will know exactly they, they also have huge cash piles. These these people are prepared to literally put up the financing for five to seven years without asking for a penny for the, from the Italian group to set them up. And they will say, you know, you, the hotspots are you need to be in, in, in New Delhi. You need to be in Mumbai. You need to be here. This is how we'll set you up. In return, they will say, we expect you to bring know-how to the table, which we don't have. We expect you to come and train our Italian, uh, uh, sorry, our, let's say, Indian, Asian workforce into how to replicate, if you like, the Made in Italy, quality and so on which is where a lot of the value lies in these brands in the eyes of foreign investors and is what they really want to keep so that's the quid pro quo so they say you you bring that to the table we'll bring the cash for five years and you know make this happen in your your country of choice and then five to seven years down the line we'll decide what we want to do whether we want to you know keep it going or perhaps the italian company wants to buy it feels it's it knows what it's doing it's settled in and buy itself back out again or or IPO the company and that, that this is very much a model that's being offered to a lot of premium brands around Europe by Asian and Indian very, extremely serious investors you know extremely cash rich powerful promoters investors if you like
0: so basically it, the the business model that you're talking about is similar to here in Silicon Valley where I live and there's basically angel investors and venture capitalists that are investing in in new businesses. well except
1: there's a difference there's um this is one of the the sticking points you have two types of promoters there are the retailers i mean reliance for example which is the ambani brothers the future group these are retailers in their own right who have a vast stables of brands many of which are european some of which are uh, American. We were looking at the sale of Lee Cooper the other day, the, the iconic jeans brand, which has just been sold. Here's, here's the difference. The, you have the, the, the retailers, and they tend to be preferred by the Italians who have a retail history, because they think these people are here to, to improve on, to, to, to keep the brand going on into the future, as opposed to your purely financial investors, your private equity houses who see the opportunity to, you know, they'll put together a JV in the country of choice, you know, split up the percentage between the two groups, pump in the money to, with an expected growth rate, rate of return. And then we'll definitely wish to exit and the fear of, you know family-owned companies many of whom have had these iconic brands in in you know within their families for centuries as a, a very much money-minded fund you know your Carlisle's your Blackstone's your Premier's your KKR's are just seeing it as an opportunity over five years to you know pump up the brand IPO it and then disappear into the sunset with their money which is of course another business model and there's to be very successful certainly financially for a lot of private equity houses but that the 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 retailers tend to the italian retailers tend to look at that with some suspicion because they say that uh, there's no love our brand here they see as a as a you know there's a potential cash cow here to be taken advantage of so you find that sometimes they can be you know john richmond is another company we've helped which is owned by an italian called severio muscula you know who will say i get three four calls every week from saying you know we can do this 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 for you and, and take it give it five years and then we all exit do an ipo and we all exit with Big bags of money, and and their obvious question for the retailer is, yeah, yeah, okay, that's great, and then what happens to our brand? You've you've ridden off into the sunset, onto the next deal. What about us? So there's they generally prefer a retail promoter as opposed to a fund they're going to be less suspicious of the funds but you're 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 completely right that the it's a those those are the two types of promoters you're looking at the retailers with big cash piles looking for if you like similar to your, your let's say your Warren Buffett who will look at look at companies where there's value to be unlocked but who's in there for the long term uh, that's certainly that's my perception of something like Warren Buffett's outfit as opposed to some of the, the, the very hard-nosed funds who are looking at the opposite. They're looking to build up and get out as quickly as they can, really, because it makes sense for them.
0: Well, the two points that you're bringing up, basically, are you have one side, which is the Warren Buffett-like that invest in something long-term, but they invest in something yeah, that they because understand he won't anything
1: unless he really understands it. That's going to give confidence to the counterparty that he's dealing with. You know, one Buffett tends to invest in companies that he loves, right? That he thinks has a great idea that perhaps hasn't been managed as well as it could have been and will come in and help. Obviously, he has the cash to help with that and isn't just going to, you know, rip the company apart, pull all the money out that he can and then, you know, move on to the next thing.
0: So, so the you currently have a an active law firm. you currently practice. You're also a consultant, which is one basically in the same. So what what inspired you to not necessarily leave behind your career as a lawyer, but just to put it somewhat to the side and concentrate mostly in pursuing the jewelry design?
1: I think two things. As I said, what, some of my clients um, are jewelers themselves. And I think just leaving aside the aesthetic side of it, just is a great deal of appeal within the, I think, the diamond market themselves anyway, just you know, there's a mystique, a glamour there, which I find quite, quite attractive. But I think there are there are two elements to that. One one of the 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 big attractions is on the finance side. There are, as I say, people. There's an increase. You know, a lot of people are looking around for new asset classes at the moment, and what you're seeing is is quite a few funds growing up, which are backed by diamonds. Uh, Goldman Sachs, I think, was the, the first probably to set one up. Rothschild has set one up, and they are springing up. Um, and what the way that works is that you know the funds buy sets of diamonds and then issue paper backed off the returns and the value growth in diamonds to investors who wouldn't know how to actually go and invest in the underlying asset itself. It's not that easy to go out and buy diamonds. And they what the, the these banks, they don't have diamond departments. They will go to diamond companies, to diamond dealers, to, to 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 purchase their collateral to back to back their funds and so on and to turn to to advise to when they need to redeem uh, the notes they've issued to their investors, and so on. They need the diamond company to help them do that. So I, you know, I see that as a huge. It's 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 very topical at the moment. Um, a lot of people are talking about it. Quite a lot of our customers are fun. Uh There's a lot of room for offering risk-return profiles to either you know very serious investors who are looking for heavy risk, heavy return type investments, and now you're looking at buying big. Carrot, colored stones, where the the value jumps around much more than, say your more standard stones, where the past 50 years have seen a steady growth. There you're, there you're looking at sort of let's say wealth management people who are maybe not that interested in doubling their money very quickly. They they've made some money. They just want to make sure they're worried about losing it in the current climate. So the, they are customers for let's say funds backed by standard high quality diamonds, where you're not going to see any exciting. Jumps in value and so on, and people issue paper off the back of that. So therefore, these investors get access to the markets without having to, you know, jump into the diamond market and try and buy the assets, which they'd be very worried about doing because, of, for all sorts of reasons, it's a, it's a tricky business. to um, big, expensive colored diamond buying, where from one day to the next, a jeweler, you know, people like your Graf, your Musayas, may suddenly turn around and say, I'm quite prepared to go and buy a lot of money for that. Spend a lot of money for that diamond because I've got a client, you know, an, a sheik or someone somewhere who wants who wants it and is prepared to buy the odds. And you know, bingo, the investor who has the paper off the back of that diamond makes makes a lot of money. So that's something, you know, that's we we have the retail clients and they deal with the the brand of Diamonds, the JP France Limited, which is the the, the, the finance and would look after would look after that. And we talk to a lot of funds, help them buy advise them on the, you know, the value curve, um, advise them on time taken for redemptions, which is obviously something that, you know, worries banks, no one likes to run on their investments, and then find out that, you know, the liquidity is not there to pay out their investors, and then they're in trouble. So, you know, we can talk them through that actually help them buy their underlying collateral that i would say is one half of the business and a very interesting one but you know ultimately not dissimilar to what people it's 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 packaging up underlying assets whether you know for a while it was you know mortgages or whatever or you know cash out of real estate the 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 idea is very similar you're just dealing with a different asset class and a set of new challenges one of you know the main issue With that is the lack of transparency in the in the in the diamond markets the the mythology some of which is true some of which isn't that surrounds the diamond market. So what any fund what you know the way they try and do that is get they put together you know a board full of let's say you know put some heavyweight financial names in their board to lend integrity honesty and so on to their fund.
0: Well, John, it's it sounds like that with your skill as a lawyer and your experience as a consultant to many of these these large brands, it, it almost seems like a natural fit to become a jewelry designer. It's, it increased your, your 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 wealth as an asset to a lot of these high net worth uh, yes. clientele. Yeah. Well, that's
1: the other point. The other point is, I mean, literally sitting across the table talking, you know, running through the business with the jewelry saying, well, what, you know, what's the issue? Where's the problem? You know, and as I say, many of some of them are because they've you know concentrated for generations upon Europe and seen that market disappear. What you know, one of the things I see is is well, it's literally just the potential there. This I mean, diamonds is obviously it's 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 not a cheap business to get started in there are potentially very high returns you're dealing with very large sums of money you getting taught about the business by the best in the business you start to think well if i combine that with the what you often find is some of these these drawers they they don't have business backgrounds you know they've got brilliant Aesthetic backgrounds, design backgrounds, manufacturing backgrounds, and so on. But you know, you look at their books and go, hmm, "Oh dear, this is a mess." You know, you're 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 no businessman. And it struck me that you know, if you combine the two and and you know, run the business as it should be, and not just concentrating on producing the next beautiful ring or piece or whatever. I mean, you need to do that as well, but do it in a in a financial and business business-like way, in a sensible way, then I think you've got you know you've got to a very good business on your hands that John, I'm
0: looking at your website, uh, JFDiamonds.com, and you have a beautiful diamond choker and crucifix, and like you say on the website, it does have that rock star edgy feel to it. You also have a bold six-carat blue si- uh, sapphire diamond ring. Uh, you call anello blue. I hope I didn't pronounce that correctly. That is a ring that will make you stand out in any event that you happen to go to. I do believe that's also a unisex style, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And you also have a similar style ring with that three-carat brown diamond. Uh, I don't believe I've ever seen a brown diamond. It? it just looks beautiful. Uh, you also have... Yeah, no,
1: I mean, that one's been picked up by a lot of publications and uh, the are pictures of, of that and a lot. It's funny you say that, but most people go straight for that and go straight for the, the other, the, the, the blue and white diamond ring. So
0: the way you've designed it, it just looks so natural between the... The gold, the yellow of the gold and the brownness of the diamond itself, it's as yeah. if they belong together. So however you decided that were to be, yeah. you, you matched them perfectly. And uh, also on your website, I think many animal lovers would love this, a 47-carat dog collar, which is made with 864 yeah. small white diamonds. I'm sure that took some time putting together. Months
1: and months and months, yeah.
0: Uh, just for the audience, I highly recommend you visit JFDiamonds.com to see more uh, samples of john's work john of all of your work which one would you say is your favorite
1: yeah, funny enough those two rings you just met you just mentioned the brown one and the anello blue the one with the um the blue and the white diamonds those two because i mean I, as you say they're they're unisex girls like wearing them boys like wearing them i often wear them You can bed your, I'll wear it today down to the coast. People will come up to me and say, where did that come from? I have not seen anything like that in any shop. And I said, well, you weren't. And there's only one of them, and there only ever will be one of them. And so I know when people come up and say that that, that, that you're on a winner there.
0: They feel like something that you can wear either at Monte Carlo or Morocco or even in Macau. Right. Yeah, you're
1: not going. To, you're not going to be out of place at all. I mean, it, they look expensive. They are expensive. They look well made. That's because they are extremely well made. It takes a very long time to make them. But, but they're big, bold statements. These aren't little solitaire rings. You know, they're not dainty in any way. They're You know, they stick out. They're big rocks.
0: Personally, what would you say is your favorite type of diamond to work with? Um,
1: for me, the bigger, the better. But, of course, depending on the rings, you know, you'll see in the blue rings, we've we've used lots of small colored diamonds around the two bigger diamonds. Um, so you have to make some match somewhat. Although I have some ideas from... Some different, types, some different types of rings. Then you've got your cuts. I mean, there, there are tradition, oh, 25 traditional cuts from your round brilliant to your emerald to your um, asher, which is slightly out of fashion. These are all sort of recognized cuts in the market. What we want to actually do is try and develop. We are currently in the process of um, negotiating the purchase of um, a share in a mine um actually with some with a company based in Beverly Hills who are a US company set up by some ex-gourmet Sachs bankers who I'm talking with we're quite far down the line we've signed the confidentiality agreements so we're moving ahead with that and i think you know one of the ideas is there is that we obviously what comes out of the mind of rough diamonds if you like and one of, one of our plans is to start trying to come out with, rather than these the traditional diamond cuts, which you see everywhere, is to start to try and come out with some new ones. Your, your obvious risk there is that you immediately, to begin with, you probably drop the value of your your diamonds a little bit. But all you need to do is to come up with one shape which catches the public's imagination and they go... Gosh, we like that. Then, then you patent it and, and you're a winner. You've just, you know, you'll go down in history as, as the man who created the whatever you want to call, you know, your new cut of diamond. This is something which interests me a great deal. And I think we'll, you know, we'll stand out to our clients. This is part of the process anyway in designing because you'll often say, to client, there's another round diamond like so many other people are wearing. Isn't there something you can do, you know, to make it look a bit different and as I say, you know, we sign contracts with our clients saying, well, if you want, we will just make one of these for you. I mean, we will even laser in script into the diamond, you know, their name or whatever they want. Most anybody who's really savvy will probably not want to do that because they'll drop the value of the diamond. But, you know, we can hide it in the gold somewhere, do something so that they can say, and this is something I found that people want is to be able to say that this ring here, you can't buy this anywhere, which is the case. So what we get when working with clients, I say, yeah, well, we like that. But, you know, how many people have a brilliant round diamond, whatever carats, even if it's, you know, 10, 12. It's still that shape that we've all seen for years and years and years. So one one thing we really want to do is to. And this is what we want to do with the mine, because then we get access to the to the rough stones. At that point, you find we found a very good cutter who's reputed to be number one in the world, who's based is an Israeli based in Tel Aviv, and we want to set up a
0: project with him.
1: You know what we want to do is to try and come up with some new some new cuts of diamonds, um, basically.
0: Did you earlier say that the cut of the diamond can be patented? Yes, that, that does something new that I've heard. I can only imagine the type of. Uh... Fight you would have.
1: Yeah, it's a copycat industry. And the first, if you came up with a new cut and people liked it, the first thing you've got to do is patent it. Otherwise, everyone will start doing it and you've lost it. So
0: would that be considered similar to how the fashion industry wants to try to, not necessarily patent, but copyright their their styles? Yes,
1: yes. You copyright everything immediately. Everything that we have, all the jewelry that we have is all patented, all of it. Very, very, very important. I mean, I wandered. I was in London yesterday wandering down Bond Street, and there, there, there seems to be quite a, this year, there were a lot of necklaces which are blue and white diamonds. And almost every single shop had one, and they're almost all identical. So, so you
0: can license the, the cut, correct? Yes,
1: you can. You can say this is mine. If you want to use it, you're going to have to pay me. So they,
0: these these patents for the diamond cut that would they be in a central repository area that other jewelers can go and look to see if they can license certain styles? Yeah,
1: I mean you you can you can patent in certain geographic locations or you can patent globally, and there is. I mean, if you see a shape and you just copy it, you do so at your own risk, because if the owner of that pattern, a lot of people do it on the assumption that mm, it's not going to be noticed, especially with some of the the, the big diamond companies who are producing massive collections, you know, somewhere in the shop will be something using that shape, they may say. We're going to get away with this because the the owner of the patents are not going to notice.
0: Well, that sounds like the the diamond industry is very similar to the tech industry because every other day there is another patent lawsuit because somebody supposedly or allegedly took something that someone else either built or created
1: I mean, jewelers are very wary of that. I know someone we work with who produced, he uses magnetism so that in his jewels, the, the diamond is actually suspended midair just above the ring using magnetic forces.
0: That's, that's an original piece right there.
1: Oh, yes. It's, it's very impressive to look at. I mean, it looks like a floating diamond or just above your finger, and you can't lose it. I mean, you do shake your hand, do whatever you like. And he's very worried. He's he, you know, it took him several years and a lot of money, and it is patented. But even with the patent, he won't show it in his, his window.
0: You spoke about several styles before and your clients and what they wanted. Are you seeing certain trends right now, or what, what is it that you're seeing in the market when it comes to trends?
1: Um, funny enough, we're seeing. the the sort of slightly more aggressive style we've certainly seen come to the fore but aggressive in the sense that and it's quite hard to do properly that that you know that you can wear out i know in your pair of jeans or whatever look almost not punk is the wrong word but rock star type look you know big and brash jewelry but that at the same time you know you the, the lady could put on her evening dress and and you know by looking at that piece that that's a you know, an important piece of expensive jewellery. And getting that mix right, you know, you don't want to, you know, buy your, your beautiful dress and then put on a piece of jewellery that looks like it belongs on a Hells Angel. So we're trying to we're trying to get that right. So the, the the mix between sort of aggressive and edgy style that can still that can still go with an elegant look. Because you don't want to niche yourself too much. That, I think, is one trend. And the other trend is, funnily enough, is uh, a lot of what they call armory-type jewellery. Like, you know, wristbands made out of, let's say, black diamonds rather than white. People who don't deal with diamonds use steel, titanium, things like that. I mean, we do a pair of bands. We call them the gladiator bands, which run up your forearm. Made out of black diamonds. And our agency are saying, God, um, I have an interview with um, Conde Nas Traveler next week who uh, want to do a, a special on what they call armory jewelry. And so they want to look at that. That's definitely a trend. I mean, cheaper, I wouldn't, wouldn't call them jewelers, but you see people making them out of nails and things like that. We say, well, we can do it out of black diamonds. We can make them hard, you know, for a man, say, we have some DJs interested in it. For example, DJs are quite interested in rings and diamonds, not not just because they like them themselves, but because it looks amazing under the light. So,
0: so where do you find your inspiration to create such works of beauty? Because that's exactly what they are. They're just beautiful masterpieces. Well,
1: I mean, like the the, the armbands. actually, that came through, I mean, it sounds... Now, that that came through the DJ Tiesto, who'd produced. He 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 likes to wear these bands. Um, as I say, quite a lot of DJs like it because under the lights, you you know, their hands just flash. You know, if they're wearing beautiful beautiful jewellery. And he had produ- He actually produced a song called Gladiator. And I thought that's interesting because DJs are one of our clientels, or top the the very top end one who who like rock stars like quite like to wear expensive jewellery. And I thought that. I just looked at them and thought, God, that looks amazing, you know, in the flesh. These are big. I mean, these run up from your wrist right up to your elbow, just just, just solid, di- you know, thousands of diamonds. Um, and I thought, well, hmm. that, that's where the inspiration for that one came from. The other two areas which I am um, very interested in are shoes, funnily enough, and we're talking to some makers of, of fine shoes of using diamonds around the heels and the soles just because they look fantastic that's why and the other thing we're looking at is um although this is quite an old one but we've been asked quite a lot of times that clients come to us with very expensive watches and say you know this is a great watch but we you know it could be a lot nicer if we did something with diamonds what do you think and we've just done it for them from for a whole range of different types of premium brand watches and what we're getting we've we've been getting some approaches from watch brands saying well how about you you do a line for us because we don't really know how to how to do that it's not our job we make watches but you know if you can decorate it because watches is a a difficult one the purist watch collectors and people who are prepared to spend a lot of money on watches when they look at the, the ones made by jewelers say those aren't watches those are jewels and you've just you've just paid You know Longines or or Omega to use their mechanism in your watch, and a lot of them don't even do that, so it's hardly a watch. So what? There are a few brands, watch brands out there that have seen that there's a value in saying no. What you're getting here is genuinely high quality watch, whether it's your Patek or your, you know, whatever. Uh, Not not just not a fashion item, and we've linked with a proper jeweler who's you know embossed it with diamonds or done done something to make it different from you know the lines produced by that that particular watchmaker so they're looking at one-off pieces and and this is something and it's we've had this we've had people walk in with great watches saying i love this but can you do something with it which will pump up its value and make it such that it's, it becomes a watch that no one else can buy anywhere else. You've just done this for me. Um, so that's something we're looking at as well.
0: What would you consider to be uh, your highlight as a jewelry designer, aside from your Anello blue and brown? Well,
1: I'd say the Gladiator bands, just because they're enormous, and come in black and white. I mean, the the black ones would come in, because I don't know if you know that black diamonds are generally, for, for a wide range of reasons, much cheaper than white diamonds. And there are reasons for that. And so they, a pair of those would come in at $650,000. If we did them in wide dimes, they would come in at $3 million for the pair. But you can do what I like about it is you can do so many things with them. A man might want, you know, a sort of macho look, hard you know a hard band around his arm you can picture the scene whereas a a woman might say what we can do is right with a different quality of diamond with very very high quality diamonds smaller we can make this look like silk because you've also got the issues of um, there are issues of wearability um, in diamond especially with the choker for example you have to be very careful you know diamonds are sharp the the one of the hardest substance known to man you get it wrong and you might slip. you know the lady's throat and then you're in big trouble so there is that element and this is where the manufact this is where the quality of your manufacturer comes in you have to say this is a great design but will it work you know is it wearable you know if that lady slips down the stairs you know i don't want you know that crucifix to go straight up into uh, her skull. So,
0: so safety is another big issue that you have to incorporate.
1: Yes, yes, but also with these big armbands, you know, you don't want the 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 you know around your wrist where 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 it joins with your hands. You don't want that being cut. Right, it
0: has to has the functionality to it. Yes,
1: yes, and that that's. That's tricky when you're dealing with, you know, a ring is one thing. But when you're dealing with very big pieces, well, anything around the neck, you've got to be careful with for, obvious, you know, totally obvious reasons. And, and very big pieces like that, you don't, you know, you wanted them to be able to have completely free movement of the hand without risk of, you know, slashing an artery in their wrist.
0: What's the average weight of these armbands? Uh,
1: it totally, totally, depend, totally depends upon um, the type of diamonds you use. But we try, not, th- actually not that heavy at all they're not you, you're not you know the one for, for a female might be concerned she said you know I don't want to develop a pair of biceps by doing this but so what we say is well you know we can make we can make these almost sort of as smooth and as as flexible as silk if you want so that it will feel almost weightless a man on the other hand might say no I want something that looks really solid heavy so we'll use bigger diamonds heavier carrots and it's going to be weightier but really it i can't give you one single weight because it will totally depend upon the client what diamonds they choose you know we'll just say we can do it like this or we can like this like this this is the pluses the minuses but we can say to the we can we can make this so that you could almost feel you're not wearing it so
0: how long does it usually take you to compose one of your one-of-a-kind custom jewelry pieces and i understand that it really depends on what it is the client wants but on the the average, uh, let's just say a typical request from uh, a client.
1: I mean, you know, for like the two rings we just mentioned, you're probably talking about four months or so to do that. But I'm looking at one, I've just the idea from the jewelry comes across the discovery of a particularly nice stone. I've come across a a very nice rare stone at the moment which I'm negotiating to buy and there it's it's a simple one the diamond is so beautiful in itself all I will do is make a very simple titanium holder if you like for the diamond to fit round the finger so effectively you're just wearing this beautiful shape cut diamond on your finger that would actually be very quick to do because the diamond's already been cut and shaped and everything to produce a, a, a simple band and make sure the grip. The grip is strong enough on the diamond so you don't risk losing the diamond, which would be a disaster, um, but also doesn't interfere with the, you know, the aesthetics and the beauty or block the beauty of the diamond or interfere with a fraction of the light and that sort of thing, which is something we've got to think about. To be honest, that is almost something we could do in a week. That's pretty fast. Well, because it would be very simple. You're literally talking about a diamond and a piece of titanium, which you just need to cut correctly. That won't take very long. It's a a very simple. There you are just showing off a beautiful diamond and you want it on your ring. You're on your finger as opposed to a very ornate piece of, um, you know, a very ornate piece of jewelry, which is going to take uh, an endless amount of time to wear. But they both have their, they're both going to be very attention seeking. You know, the, the diamond I have in question is very large. The light fractions coming off it is very beautiful. You've, you, you know, you walk and sit down at dinner or go to your event. People are going to see that they're, they're not going to miss it sitting on your hand.
0: So you also do private consultations prior to being commissioned to create one of your works of art. And that's exactly what I'm going to just call it. It's a work of art. Do your clients come to you or do you visit your clients at their location? No, we would tend to go and visit them. And how much... Travel, do you normally experience when it comes to visiting the client? Is that majority of what you do? Um,
1: I mean, we pro- you probably don't need to visit them that much. The, the initial consultation is is the first way you go with the designer, the manufacturer, the gemologist, and perhaps some design. I mean, you may speak to them and ask them, you you, you obviously want to know what you want, a necklace, earrings, ring, something different, something altogether new. So you'll get some initial information out of them first and then put together the right team for that piece because we don't have just one team that we use for everything because it doesn't make sense some people are better at doing certain types of things than others so we'll try and select put together for them the team that's right for their particular piece so we will take them up and the designer will will have an idea of what they want, but a lot of people, they don't really know what they want until they see it or, or until they're shown it. And a, a picture can help, but we'll also bring pieces up with us that we think are sort of similar and say, is, is this going in the right direction? If you had this, now what would you change? What would How do you want it? Blah, blah, blah. The the, the, the designer will take notes of that and and produce a whole set of designs trying to reflect what what they've heard the client say they want. And just keep doing that over and over and over and over until you come up until the client goes, that's it. That's what I want. The gemologist will explain to them, right, we will explain to them, you know, diamonds, and the value and so on. Because there's a question of how much they want to spend. But it's it's more complicated than that. And you can say, right, you can go cheaper on the diamond. But, let you know, in a few years time, you may have lost a lot of value. It might be worth you buying a better diamond now. In a few years' time, you may, might, might make money out of that by just extracting the diamond out of your piece of jewellery. And we'll buy it back from you, which is one of the things we offer. So the gemologist will talk them. It, it depends how sophisticated I mean, some of the, you know, there are, well, let's say there, there, were, there were 11 million billionaires in the world. They all, I think on average, it's slightly lower than you might imagine. But I think on average, each of those spend somewhere between 300000 and a half million a year just on jewellery. I'm not talking storing diamonds in a Swiss bank here, just, just, just on jewelry.
0: Well, what if I just wanted a pre-made piece and I'm not located in the area? Do you have uh, stores and do you ship?
1: Oh, yes, yes, yeah. I mean, of course, being bespoke, it's not like, I mean, we don't generally keep a huge, a huge stock. But as I say, as you were, you know, if you want to really have credibility, and this is where you, you, know, you have to stump up your own cash, you have to make pieces of various styles so that, because people like to, when you come and see them, they don't want to just see a picture of drawings. They want, you know, they want to see some diamonds. They want to pick them up, hold them, try them on, blah, blah, blah. So we always keep quite a big, uh, if you like, inventory. Those are mine, those, Julie, and I just say, you know, these are the things I like, but, you know, we'll make whatever style you like, but here, here take a look at these. You know, maybe, you know, some people might say, actually, we just want something that looks like that. So we go, well, fine, we'll do that. It may be very simple. Like I say, someone might just say, we want a three-carat, round, brilliant diamond with these characteristics, this color, internally flawless, um, perfect cut, Finish polishing set in a you know titanium or white gold band, and that's it. We hardly need to talk to them, we just go right. Well, we'll source the diamond for you, inform you what what costs we can manage to negotiate for you, and then you give us the yes or no. We don't see too much of the client, it won't take very long to make it.
0: So, what would you say is the most uh, expensive jewelry piece you've created?
1: Um, At the moment, three million for some shoes where the whole heels are made of diamonds and the sole.
0: And talking about your diamonds, can you share with us where you source your diamonds from?
1: Uh, Now that's a, that's a politically delicate point because, um, what, we're, what we are, what I've tended to do in the past is uh, use um, other diamond companies, people like Rosie Blue or De Beers, people like that, um, because that way you avoid, issue, you know, for example, I mean, a lot of the best diamonds, you know, do come out of Africa and so on, but there are all sorts of political issues going on there at the moment. So that's something you might want to stay away away from. There's a certain corner of the diamond market, which is, is, is almost... The entire preserve of 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 the jewish community again there's you have india who come out with a lot of the colored diamonds the two spots which a lot of people i think harry winston just bought a mine just before they were bought by swatch in canada where a lot of diamonds come and obviously that's a fairly politically neutral sort of country which isn't going to upset anybody and brazil is the other one which is we are we're looking to buy a mine there so that we can avoid um well, so that we don't actually have to go and deal with diamond dealers and negotiate, you can waste a lot of time doing that. What we really want, where we really want to be, is producing our own diamonds. Well, I said we produce them. I mean, they they produ- produced they they produce naturally, but have our own diamonds so that actually we're not buying diamonds off anybody. You know, they come out of our mind. We look we look at them and then cut them as as. As needed by by the client
0: well with that said where do you manufacture your jewelry once you receive your your diamond in
1: in valenza in italy which is if you like diamond center for italy for donkey's ears, which is v-a-l-e-n-z-a and there are lots of artisans there who produce very high quality work um, and it's all handmade there's no machinery involved at all i mean apart from lasers to cut the diamonds we certainly don't do any machine produced jewelry which i know some some of the bigger companies do just because i guess it makes us you know who produce collections of you know hundreds of similar pieces in the end they just use machinery to pump it out but we that's not something we do we just have as I say artisans, work, working on the pieces by, by hand. And then they will bring it back to us. I mean, I will go, We, I've just produced an 8-carat ring. I've had one look at it, sent it back, said I didn't like this, that, this bit, change this, change this, change this. This is the other thing, treatment you get. You, you, you tend to build a, quite a close relationship with the manufacturers, you know, who come in person and look at look at the ring with you, and you stare at it, and you go, "Well, what about if we do this and this and this and this?" And we've been doing this for a few weeks on one particular ring, which I hope will come out soon, and we'll start to to market as a style, which I think is very different different from anything I've seen before. I'm not I'm not going to give any details on it yet, but um, you know. What will happen is they will, the, on uh, Monday, they will, Valencia is not that, not that actually that far from Milan. They, so the artisans, they will drive up with the, what they've done with the piece. I'll come in and look at it. And it might be right now, or we might go, you know, it's, it's a process. We'll go around and say, oh, you know, if we just did change that a little bit, it might be better, might not. So that, that's the process that, 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 that comes through. It starts off with the idea. They, they produce a prototype in wax. You have a look at it and go, right. Then you go out and you buy the gold, buy the diamonds, or if you're not using gold, silver, whatever, I think mostly use white gold. They will come back with the first run of the piece. You look at it. They might might get it right first time and you're done. But it might take six, seven, ten, ten goes until you really come out. Where you go, right, you you nailed it. That's it. Got my ring. That's That's the way we work. So it's really, I mean, it is totally bespoke. You know, there's nothing... As I say, is we don't produce collections. We don't just say, right, you know, here's this piece called the what blob and we're going to produce X thousand of them and put them in a shop. That's just not what we do. We'll just keep going at one particular piece until it's, we like it. And we'll probably only make, as I say, make one of them because that, that appeals to a lot. Of, it, this whole thing, of course, costs a lot of money and it, the end, the end buyer is going to have, you know, it's going to cost. You know, hopefully they're not going to lose any money on it. And as I say, we'll, we always contract back with them that at any point, if they give us uh, two months' notice, we'll, we'll buy it back from them. The other thing we also offer is that the point is with jewellery is that you know jewellery goes in and out of fashion and what catches a lot of people out especially if they're not experienced jewellery buyers is that people you, you know we deal a lot with christie's sotheby's and so on their jewellery departments and they, they always come out with the same story that people when they get to retirement age you know come in with big boxes of you know your i don't really want you know i say cartier tiffany's not to run you know they produce great jewellery. They come in with the big boxes and think, right, now is the time to sell it. You know, we're going to buy a boat and sail off into the sunset. And Christie's going, we've well, got some bad news for you. You know, you're not going to get very much money out of that. And that's not, not because there's anything wrong with the jewellery, but because it's gone out of fashion. You know, so in a, in a sense, the jewellery's brought down the, um, the, the, the value of the diamonds. And what you get, you know, the back when they're auctioning these things at the back of Christie, Sotheby's, etc., will be diamond dealers who will have looked at what's being on sale. They'll have got the certificates from the diamonds. And they, you know, some piece, which you might think is unwearable, that looked like something that someone out of the 1940s would wear. But they will have seen that there's a great diamond in there and they will buy it cheaply and just melt it down, take the diamond out and produce something that, you know, people are now wearing today and prepared to pay a premium for. And that's a business in itself.
0: Well, th- that's a good point that you brought up. And is it possible that you can talk a little bit about jewelry as an investment? How is it that you provide that kind of service to clients?
1: Well, you, I mean, we would generally suggest really if, uh, I mean, well, there were two points. There's jewelry which has provenance. You know, it belonged to someone famous. Uh, Those things never lose value, tend to go up. You know, the Elizabeth Taylor jewels. It's common knowledge that some of the jewels in there were not great. Some of them were fantastic. Some of them were not great. But the value there is because they belong to to, to Elizabeth Taylor, right? And Elizabeth and Elizabeth Taylor Nutt came along and paid a fortune for them. Fine, or it, it belonged to some rock star or some famous character. But let's just say, you know, an, an, an anonymous rich person comes along and sells. So the provenance is out of the window. Who cares? You know, people may not have even heard of them. So what we say to people is, you know, you should have your jewelry looked at. Let's say every three to five years, we'll offer that service. And say so, you know, you might want to touch up this bit, this bit, this bit here, add something here. And we can keep we can keep the value of your of your jewel up or increase it. I mean, in a way, it just this in, in it's, a, you know, in a way the same as as, um, you know, you would expect to review your your portfolio of stocks and shares, you know, periodically and adjust the weighting you know you might say we need to be a bit lighter in gold a bit heavier in this industry a bit better. you know this is something you would expect normally to do with your financial advisor right it's no different for jewelry you should come back into us every 3 to 5 years and bring in what you bought and say how am i doing is this is this still worth what i paid for it is it worth more is it worth less if it's worth less what should i do you know we we we, we might say you know what that diamond is still. That diamond is worth more. Set in the way it's set at the moment, that's gone out of fashion. You try to sell it as it is at the moment, you would lose money. Why don't we melt this down? Um, it's not. You're not going to buy it. You don't necessarily need to buy anything more. It's just going to be some costs on the workmanship. We might well do it for free if it's a good, you know, um, a good client who, who's going to um, come back with repeat business and say let's turn this back into something that you know is new um, and the value will shoot back up again
0: John let's talk about large carat colored diamonds for a minute yeah. are they treated the same way as white colored diamonds how is that aspect of your business handled
1: in what sense
0: uh, are they how are they treated basically when you as an investment or as when you're looking to purchase
1: they are they they are both i mean they are the, the, the clientele for as in for jewelry is very limited the, the Qatari family will do it you know a graph is big here going out I mean it's spending you know a lot on a diamond because someone I mean some of the bigger diamonds aren't even made to jewels someone just want, literally wants to put them in a stand on their table you know so you've got that sort of buyer or some people really do want it turned into a necklace and they want an enormous 30 carat diamond hanging around their neck there are You know, there are people like that around. Or the other people who are really looking at it are funds, and they are aimed at sophisticated, you know, big spending investors who are looking for the potential of outsized returns, because you you find blue and red would be the the most expensive or most sought-after diamonds at the moment. So if you find a big blue or red diamond, you stick that in your portfolio and let it be known it's there and who you know, you know, a shake comes along and just wants it. Doesn't care what they pay for it. You talk to the investor and say, you know, you can sell that now and make a fifty percent return. And they're gonna say they're gonna say yes. The process of buying it is, is tricky. That is, is is tricky. I mean you have to be in the right circles, you have to well, you have to know what you're doing really. But there's a lot of interjeweling uh jewelers sort of buying and selling around there. I had a blue 8 carat a stone. I, out added the blue got a call from Elisa Musayef. I don't know if you know the jewelers, Musayef. Um, and they specialize in big-colored diamonds. She owns it. And we'd put it on a price in it, which wasn't way off. But, I mean, I would have normally expected them people to negotiate that. I think it was $12 million for that. And she just said, look. I'm flying my daughter around Europe for a visit. I'll just come in and pay for that and pick it up. Thank you. Which, And you immediately know, right, she's got a client somewhere who's going to pay double or triple for that. that there's a lot of that going on. And what, what a normal diamond it might do. I mean, if you were clever, you're, you would try and find out who that person is and do it yourself direct. But then you've got relationships to think about. It depends what. You, know, you, you wouldn't be talking to Miss to Elisa Musaif ever again if you did that. Right.
0: It is a small world, this industry.
1: It's, that's the point. It's a very small world. Very small world. So, you you know, you've got to behave behave yourself.
0: John, you also talked about special arrangements and incentives that you provided for your clients. Can you talk a little bit about that? Go a little bit deeper?
1: Well, the, the, I think the main one is, is which I, I don't know if anyone else does not or not on a contractual basis i mean you can walk into any jeweler and and say here i've got this what will you give me for it but what we what we do is say we will unwrite a contract saying you know on two months notice we'll buy this back from you and how will we value it? we'll base it on vapor poor at the time where the markets are at the time so you may just like any other you know just like the you know you get at the bottom of any investment material you know investments can go up as as well as down take independent advice you know the wording you get on whether you're buying stocks and shares or whatever same sort of thing but what we will do is contract and say right on 30 days, 60 days notice, we'll buy that back from you, should you want. Um, and here's how we'll work out the price. You you may make, come out at par, so you've had your nice jewel, you've had your nice jewel, you've worn it for two years and it's actually cost you nothing. You might make some money, so you've had your beautiful jewel, you've worn it, people have gone, ooh, ah, look at that. You know, you've got a great deal of enjoyment out of it. Then you come back and you actually get paid. So that's what we do. Or, you know, we may say, hmm, things have gone down a little bit, you may get a little bit less, but not un, un, unlikely in the in, in the diamond world. You know, as I said, we would say, well, as a piece of jewellery, you no, know, we'll we'll melt it down. We'll give you this for that diamond or whatever gem, precious gems you've got in it. It gives the client quite a lot of, especially if they're spending a lot. That when they walk out, you know, they've got somewhere to walk back into and get their money back.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the industry. What would you say is one of the biggest challenges you face as either a jeweler or as a consultant?
1: Probably, um, for us, I think the most testing, and this is why we want, um, you know, we want to, apart from the fact there are obvious benefits in owning your own mine, um, you, pay, you pay it off pretty quickly. And after that, you're not actually paying for any of your stock for any of the materials anymore. So you're on, as, as the jeweler, you're on a real winner there because you, they're just popping out of the ground and they're yours. And that gets you around one of the nasty bits, you know, which the, the person buying, the, you know, the retail buyer, doesn't get to see, which is buying the diamonds, which is an extremely sort of delicate business, one where it's easy to lose a lot of money. There are some unscrupulous people in the business, unfortunately switching diamonds is not uncommon at all once you bought them that that i would say is the most testing and sort of nerve-wracking bit of it is 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 going out and making a major diamond purchase and making sure you're not you're not getting ripped off
0: so let's look let's look towards the future john let's let's go ahead and get really positive here what would you like to see jf diamonds say in 10 20 years down the road
1: uh with a mine so that we're producing our own diamonds, which we're selling to, to funds and producing beautiful jewellery. In terms of size, we have absolutely no ambition to become. I, in, in, in this, I would say big is beautiful in terms of the diamonds. I love big diamonds. In terms of the business, I don't want to turn into some who produces, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of jewellery per year. You know, like some huge... Diamond company at all. Where, where where I'd like to be is to be known as right. If you want something really special, high quality, and blah blah blah, this is where you go. This is where you get it.
0: So you want to maintain that that personal service, that one on one touch yes. and
1: feel. Just just be known be known for just producing the best quality diamond and giving the best service, helping people make you know not helping people make money too out of it, and and making it myself too. Um, you know with the Buying back and so on. So you know, I I don't want ever to open a retail shop um, because a lot of our clients uh, will immediately turn their nose up and say, well, we don't want something which anybody can just walk off the high street and then buy in a shop. So we'll never do that. So where we want where we want to be is to be the go to people. For funds, if they want, you know, big expensive diamonds and for the the, the jewelry wears that they know that, that we're trustworthy, will produce jewels of the highest quality, they will get exactly what they asked for and they can come back and they can, you know, come back and know that they can, you know, should they wish to trade it in or change it, that they can do that whenever they want. So quality and exclusivity, just that's we want to be known to be at the top of, end of those two pillars not size
0: ladies and gentlemen that is going to do it for this episode of affairs of affluence john i would like to thank you for being on the show it was great having you We learned a lot and we look forward to having you on again Good. thank you very much if you want more information on john and jf diamonds go visit his website jfdiamonds.com you can follow john Francis via twitter at jf diamonds or visit our show notes on affairs Thank you for listening to the Affairs of Affluence show. I'm your host, Carlos Cruz, and I hope you've had a great time with us. Please visit our website, affairsofaffluence.com, and please support us by going to iTunes to subscribe and leave a comment. It would help get the word out about the Affairs of Affluence show. Once again, thank you for joining, and we'll see you again soon.